Well, good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all enjoying each other and getting caught up and fellowshipping together. That is an important reason why we gather. We're part of a community, the body of Christ, and we build each other up, encourage each other, and just enjoy each other. So, glad you're here this morning. This morning is a day that precedes Thanksgiving, so we're going to focus on being thankful and grateful for all that the Lord has done for us and in our lives, and uh, counting our blessings one by one. So that's why we're here. Let's begin by watching this brief video.
Let's continue our worship um, as as uh, we proceed. We're going to read some scripture together. It's going to be responsive, and this one has a repetitive response. So this year, I'm going to do that. So you guys are going to take the lead. I'll help you get going, and we'll read this scripture responsively. Go ahead. Let's go. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to Him who alone does mighty miracles. His faithful love does endures forever. Give thanks to Him who made the heavens so skillfully. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to Him who placed the earth among the waters. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to Him who made the heavenly lights. His faithful love endures forever. The sun to rule the day. His faithful love endures forever. And the moon and stars to rule the night. His faithful love endures forever. He gives food to every living thing. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His faithful love endures forever. Let's stand together and sing of God's faithfulness.
You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good to be here with you this morning. If you are visiting or new, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church. We're glad you're here joining us this morning. As we get started, just a couple announcements to draw your attention to. And so, one coming up December 5th, following the Sunday school hour, so like at noon, we're going to have what we're calling pizza with the pastors here at church. And so, this is primarily for those of us, those of you who are, have come in the last while and maybe haven't gotten to know me and myself or Pastor Ian very well, just want to get to know us more. And so, following the service on December 5th, we'll serve you pizza, we'll hang out, we'll just an opportunity for you to, you to get to know us, for us to share a little bit with you about what's going on in the church. Um, so we would invite you to be a part of that if you're new here in the last several months or so. And then also the following Sunday on December 12th, we will have our congregational meeting uh, here following the Sunday school hour. So we encourage those of you who are members especially to be here and be a part of that. Um, but if you're not a member, you're welcome to attend. And finally, uh, in, your, in your bulletin, you have this envelope, which is the Christmas gift for missionaries. So this time of year, every year, we kind of gather a special offering that we can use to bless our missionaries with. And so if you want to contribute to that, you can put that specific gift in this envelope and then drop it in the boxes on the back wall along with your regular tithes and offerings. Along with that, like when we worship, one of the ways we invite you to worship with us is through giving, right? Not because we need it, not because we expect it, because it's a way for us to give back what God has freely given to us. So if you do want to contribute to what God is doing through the ministry of this church, you can place tithes and offerings in the box that's on the back wall, or you can give online at tlefc.org slash give. As we continue this morning in this time of worship, would you join me in a time of prayer? Father, we come and we are, we've been singing this morning, thankful for all that you have done and that you do for us. That so many things that we do not deserve, so many things that we take for granted on a day in, day out basis are gifts from you. And we don't often stop to acknowledge your blessings, acknowledge your goodness to us. Get in this moment now, just do want to stop and say thank you for the many blessings in my life and in each of our lives, the way you care for us, the way you've been good to us, the way you provide for us. Even as we acknowledge your blessings and your goodness, we also know that life is not without challenges, life is not without trial. We pray for those of us who are gathered here, who are in our church family, just in our community and throughout the world, who are hurting this morning. Whether it's emotional pain or it's physical pain, we pray that you would 
bring healing where it's needed, that you would bring comfort and peace where it's needed. We just pray that you would be at work in the lives of those who are hurting to bring them comfort. And as we continue to worship you this morning, God, would you quiet our heart? Would you remove any distractions or worries or cares from our minds that we could come before you and we could sing to you and we could hear your word and that through that we would be given a sense all the more deeply of what a great God you are, how much you love us, how much you care for us. Great God, in Jesus' name, Amen. As we've been talking about this morning, we're talking about things we are thankful for and blessed by. And one of the things that many of us have had that chance to be thankful for is children. And so I'm going to invite Gary and Amy Baumas to come with Zella, and they're going to come and dedicate Zella this morning. And as they come, let me just talk a little bit about why we do child dedication and what the value is in child dedication. Like, there is no a greater responsibility, no greater privilege, but also no greater challenge, I think, for many of us than raising a child. So, in child dedication, like we get the chance to acknowledge first, as parents, like our, our helplessness, that like, we can't do this on our own. And we can't do it on our own in two ways. We can't do it on our own, first and foremost, without God. And then also we can't do it on our own, first and second, without the support of a community and a congregation. So this is a chance this morning for Gary and Amy to come and to kind of pledge and before the church their desire to raise Zella like in a God-fearing, God-honoring home and to know Jesus, but then also to the chance for us as a congregation to come alongside and support them and offer them encouragement. And so... As we do that, I'm going to ask first Gary and Amy three questions, and then I'm going to ask the congregation three questions. And so the first question, Gary and Amy, I'll ask you is, do you recognize Zella as the gift of God and give thanks to God for the blessing of Zella? And then the second question, do you dedicate Zella to the Lord who gave her to you? And then finally, do you promise that with God's help and guidance, you will undertake to lead Zella to trust Jesus as her Savior and to serve Him as Lord? And for us as a congregation, I'd ask us these questions as we seek to come alongside Gary and Amy and support them as they raise their family. The first question for us as a congregation, do you promise to support these parents with your prayers that they seek to fulfill their responsibilities to their child? And do you promise to assist these parents by providing encouragement, counsel, and help as they seek to raise their child to know and love Jesus? And do you promise to receive Zilla in love and to pray for her and to help instruct her in the faith and to encourage her? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Zella and the gift that she has been to Gary and Amy and to many of us in the congregation. We thank you for the way you 
work to knit together families and to bring families together and you work through the family to draw people to yourself. We pray for Gary and Amy as they seek to raise Zella and Whitney um, just to know you, that you give them encouragement and perseverance when it's needed and strength and wisdom. God, would you be with them? Would you help them to raise their children to know and love and honor you? We pray for us at the church that you would help us to come alongside both Gary and Amy and the other parents in the congregation to support them, to love their children. We come alongside them. We love Zella to help her grow in her knowledge of you, to be encouraged and to help, just to help her feel the love that comes from Christ through His body that's gathered here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a gift for you guys. I'll give you that, and I'll send you back. Let's continue in worship. If you would, please stand and let's worship in song.
we stand here before you now only because of the great things you have done for us. With your blood, you have saved us from the pigsty of sin that we wallow in. And with your power, you've raised us out of the muck of sin and sent to all of the hosts of heavens, Rejoice, for this beloved one of mine was dead and is alive again. This wayward one that was lost is now found. So, Lord, your mercy is new every morning. And that's a good thing because every day I need your grace and forgiveness. Lord, we give you thanks for the things that you have done. Amen. Please be seated. I think it's probably true that there's no one on earth more easily impressed than a parent whose kid just did something for the first time. Right? Like, like the average person will take 200 million steps in their lifetime. Like, for most of us, there's nothing particularly impressive about walking across a room. But have you ever been around a parent whose kid just took their first steps? Like, you would think, like, based on that, the reaction to their kid walking, that their kid just did the greatest thing ever. Right? Like, like you'd think their kid just ended world hunger or something. Like, they just took a couple steps. Like, a couple weeks ago, I was, I was down in Louisville. While I was there, I was visiting a friend who I used to teach with, and the friend has a, just a 10-month-old baby. And that baby had, like, the day before I got there, learned how to clap her hands. And look, yeah, it's cute, whatever. <laughs> I'm like, look, like this friend is a great person. I don't want to throw her under the bus. But like, I lost count of how many times I had to pretend to be impressed by the fact that her baby could clap her hands. Like, I do that by accident eight times a day. And I'm like, like, parents just love to show off their kids' new tricks. Like, I don't know if you ever had that, like, awkward moment where you're at somebody's house and they have a young child and that kid just learned a new trick, right? So they want to show it off. So they're like, give their kid a ball and they're like, come on, little Johnny, throw me the ball. Show them how you learn how to throw. And the ball just sits there and the kid just looks at the parents with a blank face. The kid won't comply. Like, he's not going to do it. And every time I'm in one of those situations, even though I know babies aren't like, capable of this level of thought, like, every time I'm in that situation, I think I can look into that baby's eyes and see that baby thinking, like, I'm not here to do tricks for you. Like, I'm not your circus monkey. Like, I swear the baby's thinking that. So the kid just sits there, and the parents like, are hopelessly trying to get the kid to do the trick. Like, it's just, nothing's happening, and it's like, uncomfortable for everybody. Like, sometimes people in the gospel treated Jesus similar to how we treat those babies who just learned a new trick. Like, like they treated someone who they just like, expected to show up and do a trick for them. Like, they didn't treat him like God in the flesh. They treated, like, treated him like some circus monkey. So we're going we're gonna to be in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 29 this morning. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. We'll see an example of this. But as you turn there, I just remind you that in last week's sermon, 
we have this scene where Jesus cast out a demon. Like the demon who was making a man unable to speak. Jesus cast him out, and the crowd had two reactions. That's the first reaction that some of the crowd said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Right? So some of the crowd ascribed Jesus' power to Satan. That was the first reaction. But then in verse 16 we're told, others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. So most of last week's sermon will focus on Jesus responding to the crowd who said that he was working by Satan's power. He was refuting that argument. It wasn't by Satan's power that he was doing these things. But in this week's passage, Jesus responds to the second objection. Jesus responds to those who are demanding a sign from him. And Jesus' reaction to those who are demanding a sign to him is similar to the reaction of a kid whose parents want him to perform his latest trick. Jesus is going to say, more or less, I'm not here to do tricks for you. I'm not here to be your circus monkey. And let's see what I mean. Let's read this passage together, starting in verse 29 of Luke chapter 11. And in it we read this. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also the son of man, will be the Son of Man to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they will put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. So, like in saying all this, the stuff that Jesus just said, I think all that, Jesus is really trying to drive home this one kind of big idea, which is this. Right? If you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow after me, you need to believe that there is nothing and no one greater than me. To follow Jesus is to believe that there is nothing and no one greater than he is. And his greatness, the thing that makes Jesus great, is about more than just his ability to do miracles. The thing that makes Jesus great is not first and foremost his ability to produce signs from heaven, which is why the crowds demand that Jesus perform a sign is entirely uncalled for. The crowd wants Jesus right, to prove his credentials right, by performing some sign from heaven, for some miracle. Like, let's not forget he, they asked for this right after he cast a demon out and makes a man unable to speak suddenly able to speak. 
But they want another sign. They want a bigger sign, a better sign. And the crowd makes it sound like if you perform some great, grandiose miracle, then, then we'll believe in you. Then we'll get it. Then we'll be on board. Which at first may, like, may seem reasonable. Right? Like Jesus is claiming to be God's long-promised Messiah. Many people have come before who made that same claim and were proven to be frauds. He's making an extraordinary claim. And extraordinary claims that demand extraordinary evidence to be believed. And so it may seem reasonable that the crowd wants some evidence. But Jesus responds to their demand by saying, this is a wicked generation that asks for a sign. And so you may be inclined to ask, like, is it really so wrong for the people in the crowds to want some solid evidence before they like, radically reorient their whole belief structure, before they flip their whole life and everything they've always believed upside down? Like, isn't it reasonable for them to want some kind of evidence. I think if, if they were truly, earnestly seeking God, they were genuinely weighing the evidence, and that this man, this asking for a sign, wouldn't be so uncalled for. But Jesus knows their heart. He knows that's not the case. That's not, that's not what's going on. They're not just looking for a little more evidence. When Jesus says in verse 33, he says, No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. And what he's saying there is, like, when God sent Jesus into the world, God didn't send him into the world only then, like, hide his true nature. If more miracles would actually help more people believe in Jesus, he would do them. God's not trying to hide who Jesus is. He's not trying to put him under a basket. He is already on full display. Everything that anyone needs to know in order to follow Jesus has already been fully revealed. A little later in the book of Luke, Jesus will tell the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And that whole parable is about like, trying to get someone to follow God, follow after Jesus. And Jesus concludes that parable by, parable by saying this, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. What Jesus is saying right, is if someone's heart is hard, someone's heart is cold toward God, like no miracle, no sign is going to convince them by itself that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is who He says He is. And that's what's going on with the crowd here. They claim, like, if you give us a little more evidence, we will trust you, Jesus. So we will follow after you if you give us a little bit more evidence. But Jesus knows that's not true. Which means they must be asking for a sign for some other reason. It's like, maybe they just wanted to see a sign because they just wanted to see something kind of cool happen. Like, like we as a people like to be able to claim that we were present when something extraordinary took place. Like, I was watching a documentary a while back about the Ice Bowl, the famous game between the Packers and the Cowboys. And someone in the, 
in that documentary quip that if, if everyone who has claimed to have been at the ice bowl was actually there, like, the stadium would have been three times bigger than it actually was. Like, we just like to claim that we were at cool events. Like, people want to claim they had witnessed a moment in history. So maybe the crowd just wanted a sign from Jesus so that they could claim they saw something cool happen. Or maybe they wanted a sign because they assumed that whatever sign Jesus did, it would benefit them. Like, like they had probably heard stories of Jesus healing, about Jesus feeding 5,000. They heard about all these things that Jesus did to benefit others, and they wanted in on that action. They wanted a piece of that blessing pie for themselves. Like, no matter what the, the crowd's motivation was, though, there was a fundamental problem with their thinking. And that promised this. Right? The crowd wanted to be around Jesus, not because of who he is, but because of what he could do for them. Right? I think if we're honest, it's really easy for us to do the same thing with Jesus. Often our relating with Jesus is predicated on like, what we can get out of the deal, not our desire to genuinely know him. A lot of times, like, we want to be near to Jesus because we want to see Him do a trick. We want to see Him perform a miracle. We want to see Him cure our sickness. We want, to, we want Him to make us rich. or We want Him like, to make our troubles go away. Like a lot of times, we draw close to Jesus, not because of who He is or what He has done for us on the cross. Like, we draw close to Jesus because we, of what he, we think he can do for us. Like, we don't want to take up our cross of suffering and follow Him. We don't want to submit ourselves to a life of obediently following after Him. We don't want to admit that we really need Jesus, because to admit that we need Jesus would, to, would be to admit that we're sinful. Like, we don't want any of that. We just want to stay on the edge of Jesus' circle so that we're close enough to see Jesus do his next magic trick, but not so close that we have to change our lifestyle at all. So if that's you this morning, if you feel that, if you feel yourself staying at a distance from Jesus, if you're like hanging around the edges because you think it might benefit you, but don't want to fully commit yourself to following Jesus, I would just encourage you to follow him. Like, yes, there are challenges. Yes, there are hardships that come from following after Jesus. But it's worth it. So like, maybe, maybe you come to church, maybe you hang around the edge of Christianity because like, you think it'll make your family life better. Or maybe you have a, a loved one who is sick and you're hoping that Jesus will heal them. Maybe you need a new job so you're hoping that you'll... By coming to church, you'll make God happy and He'll give you the job of your dreams. Like, well, those, things are, those things are great. Like, it's nice to have those kind of blessings. God does at times bless His people with things like that. But He wants His people to be blessed by so much more than those trivial things. God wants to bless us with so much more than health and wealth. But the greater blessings, the blessings that come 
from following Jesus come not when we hang around the edges of Jesus' circle. But those blessings come when we pursue after Him closely and we repent of our sins. The full scope of the blessing God has for us come when we fully submit ourselves to Him. And Jesus gives us a couple of examples of what that submission looks like in this passage. But the examples that he gives are incredibly unexpected examples. So the first one is found in verse 31. He's talking about the Queen of the South. who is known elsewhere as the Queen of Sheba. So verse 31, we read Jesus saying, The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now, something greater than Solomon is here. So the full story of this queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, she called, is found in verses 1 and, or, found in 1 Kings 10. And verses 1 and 2 of 1 Kings 10 say this. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a great caravan, with camel carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. And so this, this queen of Sheba, she traveled a great distance Okay, a great personal expense because she heard about Solomon's relationship to God. She had heard rumbling of this king that God had given special wisdom to and she wanted to be part of that. She wanted to learn from him. And now Jesus says, like, here I am. I'm standing here in front of you. You don't have to travel anywhere. I'm right here in front of you and I'm even closer to God than Solomon was. But instead of being willing to pursue after me like the Queen of Sheba was, like you and the crowd are not willing to follow after me. The Queen of Sheba was a Gentile from a far-off land. And she just heard kind of whispered of Solomon's relationship with God. Yet for her, it was worth sacrificing greatly to go to learn about God from Solomon. And now here's Jesus, who is greater than Solomon. And he's ministering right in the midst of these Jews. They don't have to go anywhere. But they still reject him. So Jesus holds like the Queen of Sheba up as what it looks like to pursue after him, like to travel, to sacrifice. And that's a startling example. But the second example he gives is even more startling. In verse 32 he says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Right, so, if you know the story of Jonah, like you'd probably know like, Jonah's like running from God. God tells him to go to Nineveh and as punishment for running from God, God sends a fish to swallow Jonah up. I think we all know the story about the fish that swallowed a guy and then spat him back out. Right? That's the child Bible version of the story. But the reason Jonah is running from God 
It's like God told him to go to Nineveh. And Jonah couldn't process why in the world he would go to Nineveh. The people of Nineveh hated the Jews, and the Jews hated them back. And the people of Nineveh were wicked, wicked people. It made no sense to Jonah why he would go to Nineveh. But God sent the fish who swallowed him and spits him back out. And then Jonah does finally go to Nineveh. And when he gets to Nineveh, this is what we read in Jonah chapter 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Here's the important verse, verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herd or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And so here's this people, it's the Ninevites, who wanted nothing to do with God. They hated the Jews, they were rebelling against the Jews, they were a wicked people. Like some of the stories we have from like historical sources and archaeological evidence of the way the Ninevites acted, they're, they're truly atrocious. Yet Jonah shows up, right, who the Ninevites presumably know nothing about. He just like shows up in their city. And Jonah warns them of God's coming judgment, and they repent. And they believe God, and they turn from their wicked ways and turn to God. This wicked people repent and turn to God. But when Jesus, who is greater than Jonah, shows up in the midst of God's own people, the Jews, and he points out their sin. And he lived among them and he ministered among them. He performed miracles among them. When he preaches that same message that they need to repent, God's own people ignore that message. And Jesus is greater than Solomon. Jesus is greater than Jonah. And so the response to him should be even greater than the Queen of Sheba's response to Solomon. The response to Jesus should be even greater than the Ninevites' response to Jonah. But instead, the response that Jesus gets from the crowd is rejection. And the question becomes, why? Why do the people in this crowd reject Jesus? And that's a big question. Like, just a question of like, why do some people respond to Jesus and not others? It's a huge question. We don't can't fully answer that question this morning, 
find out even fully in this lifetime. But Jesus gives us like a little bit of an answer in verse 35 of our passage this morning. He says this. He says, See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Which is kind of a weird statement, kind of a hard statement to grasp. Like, how can the light within me be darkness? The Jews is clearly speaking metaphorically here. So if we could translate that, I think we could say this. Like, in your pursuit of God, don't settle for unfulfilling alternatives. Like every person who has ever lived has something they view as supremely valuable. Like something that is like the thing that makes life worth living for them. Something that is their ultimate motivation. So maybe that's God. But for many people, maybe it's, it's money. Maybe it's fame. Maybe it's reputation. Maybe it's just having fun or happiness. Maybe it's power, but like we all have something we find more valuable, more glorious, more beautiful than anything else. And that one thing is what drives the way we live and what makes life worth living. And I think like that thing is what Jesus is talking about in this verse where he talks about the light that, was, that is within us. Right? The light within you is the thing that is your ultimate source of what motivates you you go through life. So he's saying, like, make sure, whatever that thing is, make sure it's not darkness. And oftentimes we think we have that thing that drives us. We think we're following after something that is light, but really it's darkness. And for the Jews in the crowd, like, instead of seeing Jesus as their ultimate source of light, like, they pursued God through their own self-righteousness and their own self-effort. As they saw like their status as Jews, as God's chosen people, as, as their source of light. They, they didn't need Jesus because they already had their status as Jewish people. They had their own self-effort. They had their own obedience to God. But to use Jesus' language, their eyes were unhealthy. They aren't rightly seeing the way to live the life that God called them to live. They're trying to find light in all the wrong places. And those places actually lead to to darkness in their heart and not to light. One author puts it this way. He says that the light of Christ is constantly shining. But whether people are going to experience its blessing a blessed influence and working of salvation or not depends on their inner disposition and their attitude toward Jesus. So for the people in the crowd, the people that Jesus is talking to, like their hearts are, are hardened toward Jesus because they're looking for meaning and purpose in all the wrong places. Like it's easy to look at other people doing this and be like, you silly person, like why, like, what, just, why are you doing that? But like, pretty easy for me to do it too. Like, like it's tempting for me to find like more meaning and more purpose in being praised by other people 
than it is in knowing that I'm honoring God. I guess it's tempting for me to find like, more joy and satisfaction in material things rather than in God. I guess it's tempting for me to, to want to be perceived more as a good father to my earthly kids than like being perceived as a good child to my heavenly Father. It's tempting for me to want to live a, a safe, easy, comfortable life in my little self-made bubble than to risk discomfort and awkwardness and emotional pain by being out in the world doing the things that God has called me to do. We all have these things that pull at us to not follow Jesus, but to follow our own desire, to follow what Jesus calls the darkness within us. And the reason these things are so tempting is that they can, they can satisfy us for a little while. Like all those things, money, comfort, popularity, self-righteousness. They can, they can look like light for a while. They can look like light when our eyes are unhealthy. And when we find those things satisfying, which we can for a while, then it makes us stop pursuing Jesus. But in the end, like, none of those things will leave us ultimately satisfied. In the end, all those things are darkness. In the end, the only true light, the only thing that truly satisfies us is Jesus. And thankfully, when we look to Jesus as our source of light, like we find that He is an unlimited source of grace. So in verse 34, Jesus says, Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. Right, and so what matters? Like This is important. Right? What matters, ultimately, is not that in your own self-effort you make sure your eyes are looking in the right direction. That's not what Jesus says. He says, your eye is not of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. So you can't, through your own self-effort, make your eyes healthy. What we need is not help fixing the eyes we already have. What we need is a new set of eyes. Because when we have healthy eyes, Jesus tells us that our body will be full of light. But we can't work our way to healthy eyes. There's no exercise routine that makes your eyes go from unhealthy to healthy. We need an eye transplant. We need eyes to be made new. And thankfully, the Bible tells us that's what happens when we trust in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. He makes us new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Right? The old has gone, the new has come. When we trust in Jesus, we are made new. We get a new set of eyes. And when we have that new set of healthy eyes, it first tells us that our whole body is also full of light. So verse 34 says, When your eyes are healthy, your body also is full of light. 
And the very last verse of this passage says this. If your body is full of light, which it is if you have healthy eyes, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. So if you have healthy eyes, right, then you will have light like a lamp shining on you. And in this passage, like in the analogy, Jesus is the lamp. Jesus is the light. Right, so like here's what this is saying. Like if you have received new and healthy eyes, which you receive by trusting in Jesus, right, then Jesus' light shines on you and God sees your life as light and as pure as Jesus' own life. Even when you sin, even when you fall short, the darkness in you is overpowered by the light that comes from Jesus shining on you and through you. The light of Jesus shines on you and overwhelms all the darkness of your sin. His grace is unlimited. There's no cap to the amount of darkness that light can block out. Jesus said earlier in the passage, right, that no sign will be given to this generation except for the sign of Jonah. And then Matthew's telling of this same story. He makes explicit the sign of Jonah is that Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days, like, presumed dead, and then three days later was spit out of the fish and rose again. And so the sign of Jonah that Jesus will do is his resurrection. And the reason his resurrection is so important that on the cross, Jesus took all our sin. He paid the penalty that our sin deserved to be punished with. He took it on himself and he went into the grave. And then on the third day when he rose again, when he fulfilled this sign of Jonah by rising again from the dead, he declared through his resurrection that he had overcome all sin, all death. And because of that, when we trust in him, God treats us as if we live the perfect life that Jesus lived. His light never stops shining on us. As long as you've trusted in Jesus, His light shines on you. And that light shining on you means all sin, past, present, and future, are forgiven. So look, if you're here, and you've never trusted Jesus, right? if you've maybe been hanging around the periphery, seeing what Christianity is about, seeing what benefit it might be for you, if you've never trusted Jesus, you never committed yourself to following after Him. I just invite you to do that. Not because it's easy, not because it will guarantee all kinds of health and wealth and prosperity and blessing, because it will provide you with forgiveness for your sins and eternity in glory with God. The trust and follow Jesus. And for those of us who are here, who have committed ourselves, who have followed after Jesus, this, this passage reminds us of a couple things. One, like there is nothing and no one greater than Jesus. It can be tempting, it can be easy to 
prioritize other things above Him. Put career success to put reputation to put other things above Jesus. But Jesus is greater than Solomon. He is greater than Jonah. There is no one greater than him. And he is worth following. He is worth sacrificing for to follow. Now just encourage us. Follow after him closely. We've all at different times failed. Some of you right now are walking really closely with Jesus and some of you are in a season where you feel maybe a little bit detached from Him. So as we head into this Thanksgiving week, one of the things we can be thankful for is that even when we've sinned, even when we've drifted away from Jesus, He does not forsake us. He does not leave us. But He invites us to come back to Him trusting that His grace truly is unlimited. That no matter what we've done, no matter how we've rebelled, no matter how we've drifted away, His grace is still for us and He wants us to come back to it. Let us be thankful for that and let us return to Jesus and follow Him closely. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You, we praise You for the work of Jesus. We thank You that He came, that He lived the perfect, sinless life that we all have failed to live He went to the cross willingly dying in our place suffering the penalty that we deserve for our sins that we believe in Him. Our sins are forgiven and we spend eternity with Him. God, will we never take that lightly? Would we never cease to be amazed by what a precious gift that is. For those of us here who maybe heard that before but never truly internalized that, I pray that you would be at work to make that real to us, to make us truly grasp what Jesus has done. For those of us here who follow and love Jesus, that we never cease to be thankful for all He's done. Especially in this week ahead where we will give thanks for many things. But we not lose sight of our ultimate reason for thankfulness. What Jesus has done for us and what would we we not lose sight of the fact that you are the giver of all good things. That you are the one that we give thanks to. You deserve all our honor and all our praise. You deserve all the glory. That we 
We live lives that reflect that truth. We live lives that seek to honor and praise and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. As you go from here, would you go seeking after God, pursuing God, trusting that He is, trusting that Jesus is the greater Solomon, the greater Jonah. Would you go with thankfulness for all He has done for you? You are dismissed.